I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Ph.D. economist and former United States Senator Phil Graham about his new book, The Myth of Income Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate which came out September 15, 2022. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the three best books on politics that was released in 2022. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on January 18, 2023. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. I'm Harlan Crow, and I want to just say thanks for coming to Old Parkland this early in the morning. I, I'm not going to introduce Phil Graham. I don't think it's necessary, but I will say that uh, there, there are very few people that can combine um, high intellectual achievement in the way he has in the field of economics with Texas folksiness. <laughs> but he does it in a brilliant way, and we always love to see and welcome Senator Graham so thank you, guys. You're on. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And one of the ways that I persuade authors and historians to come to Dallas on their book tours is I say, this is the premier venue in America for a book event, the Pecan Room. There is nothing like it, and they all agree that that's true. So Harlan, thank you for providing this fantastic space. Uh, I want to uh, thank all of our sponsors who make it possible for us to do these events. They have paid for your, your breakfast, your valet parking, your book, uh, the program, everything associated with it. Uh, the Crow Foundation uh, is uh, our book provider. Thank you, Crow Foundation. Uh, our law firm, the Shackelford firm, John Shackelford, my managing partner, is over here. Uh, PwC, Byron Carlock and his great team from PwC. I have a bias because my son happens to work for PwC Consulting, so they have a special place in my heart. Uh, Overland Partners, uh, top architectures, leading ar sports architects in the world. Robin Blakely over here. Uh, Swinnerton Construction, Jeff Blakely, where are you? Over there with, with your group. Robbie Briggs, Briggs Freeman Sotheby's, so glad to have you as a sponsor. Security National Bank. Gary Ward and your team. Uh, so thank you all for, for making this happen. Uh, all your guests, make sure you thank whoever it was who invited you because we've got a real treat in store for us. As Harlan said, Phil really doesn't need an introduction. We know what a great job he did during the years he was a senator from Texas, before that a congressman from Texas, before that a professor of economics at A&M. And thank goodness we had a pandemic because the pandemic allowed Phil to block out all of his distractions and write this book. And if you haven't already, you need to read the Wall Street Journal review of it, as well as Phil's frequent op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal, because it is a game changer. So Phil, welcome to Old Parkland and our- Thank you, thank you so much. Um, well, First of all, I want to thank Harlan for the vision and genius to turn this old facility, it's an old hospital, into probably the premier real estate development in America. 
If, uh, if I were in Dallas and had the money, I would have an office. <laughs> um, uh, let me also say, uh, I had the privilege of representing our state for 24 years. And so great privilege representing the greatest state and the greatest country in the history of the world. And uh, I loved my job. I love running for office. You know, people don't run again because they say they don't want to raise the money. And uh, I loved raising the money. Um, my problem was I have a young wife who wanted money, and so I had to leave to make it, and I still work. Uh, but when the pandemic came, I had an opportunity to really focus on something that for years I had observed and thought about, but never really had the time to deal with. And that is, for the last quarter century, I have thought something was wrong with our basic economic measures of the well-being of the American people. The country that I saw through my eyes was not the same country that I saw in the official statistics of the United States. And then about 15 years ago, there was a study at the University of Chicago that looked at people who were living in poverty uh, 25 years ago and what they consumed and then looked at people who were in poverty today and what they consumed and basically concluded that whereas the Census Bureau said that 14% of the people in the country were poor, that in fact, by the level of actual consumption compared to 25 years earlier, only between two and 3% of the people in the country were poor. And uh, so as I look more and more closely at this problem, evidence of it started to spring up and probably the two biggest pieces are in 1967, federal, state, and local governments gave transfer payments to the bottom 20% of income earners on average in the of the bottom 20% households, average of $9,700. And fellow, I think you need the word transfer payment means everything where the government takes money from somebody and gives it to somebody else in, a, in the form of a payment. There are about 125 federal transfer payments from um, Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by 2017, 50 years later, those transfer payments were worth $45,400 per average household in the bottom 20% of income earners, and yet the poverty rate never changed. It oscillated between 14 and 11% for 50 years. So you ask yourself, you were providing $9,700 of real transfer payments, real purchasing power, 
adjusted for inflation. Now you're providing 45,400, and yet the poverty rate is unchanged. How is that possible? And then, finally, every year, the Census Bureau puts out a number of the average household income. It's the basic building block of all of our measures of well-being. And each year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out what people consume. So you got two numbers, what income is, what consumption is. Well, last year, the bottom 20% of income earners spent on consumption twice as much as their income. The next 20% spent 11% more than their income, and the top 20% spent only half their income, even though there's no evidence that there was anything like a 50% savings rate. So how did all this happen? Well, what we, when we decided to go behind the numbers, uh, what we discovered was that in 1947, when the census started to calculate household income, there weren't many transfers in kind. Most payments were in cash or cash equivalent. So they defined income as cash income. But when the war on poverty came in 1965, virtually every welfare program in the country is a payment in kind, where government pays for certain things for certain people. And so what we have found is, is that the census has never changed its definition. And so now it does not count two-thirds of all transfer payments to the bottom 20% of income earners as income. It doesn't count food stamps, even though they get a debit card where they can go to the grocery store and buy food. It doesn't count rent subsidies where government pays their rent. It doesn't count Medicaid, where government pays their health care bill. It doesn't count over 100 federal programs. It counts virtually no state and local programs. So that the first problem is we're grossly undercounting the income of moderate-income people. And secondly, the census takes no account of taxes. Well, of course, when you pay taxes, most people never see the income because it's deducted from their checks. But it's clear whether you see it or you don't see it, you don't have it. When, <laughs> when, you, when you pay the taxes, it's gone. So anyway, here is what all this means, and I know it sounded dull and technical, but what all this means is the Census Bureau says that the top 20% of American earners earn or have income that is 16.7 times the bottom 20%. But if you count all transfer payments as income the people that get it, and all taxes as loss of people that pay taxes, the ratio is not 16.7 to one, but four to one. Now, you can say four to one is too much. You may have a debate about that. And we don't, we, what we try to do in the book is to get the facts straight. 
But there's a very different debate between 16.7 to 1 and 4 to 1. That's Secondly, right. Secondly, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the poverty rate is not 14%, but between 2 and 3%. You've all seen the famous economist quote, inequality in the West is high and rising. Bernie Sanders says, growing income inequality is obscene and unsustainable. Well, we show that when you count all transfer payments as income, and you count all taxes as income lost, that income inequality is actually lower today than it was 70 years ago, slightly lower. So, so Phil, uh, thank you for laying out exactly the theme of your book. And the question is, why? Why is our Census Bureau ignoring, obviously, relevant information to promote a theme of gross income inequality, rising poverty. What is behind this decision to ignore the relevant data? Well, we decided in the book to simply point out the facts and not get into trying to, to, to discuss why it came about. Now, we talk about, in 1947, it was a simplification they didn't have the statistical ability they have now, and it was a reasonable approximation, about 95% accurate, which for government work is good work. <laughs> um, but over the years, as new payments have been made, it has become more and more inaccurate. And by leaving out taxes, when a primary function of the census is to calculate income inequality uh, creates gross distortion. So I would say based on having looked at it closely, to begin with, it was they didn't have the ability to, to get a number that was more accurate than the approximation. Over time, they now collect all this data. We don't have any data in the book that's not government data. So they collect what's spent on food stamps, Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They just don't count it as income. Yeah, which, um, which, <clears throat> so there's no issue about the accuracy of the data no, that's right. in the conclusions in Phil's book. The issue is, why isn't the data being used to create an accurate portrayal of where things are? I mean, you do say in the book that there are, quote, self-serving leaders who obtain power in the name of income redistribution only to serve their own interests. Now, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. He comes to mind when I read that phrase. Uh, who are the other main well, perpetrators? Well, it goes, I mean, it goes back to the time of the ancient Greeks. Um, the, a fundamental problem undermining democracy from the very beginning in Athens was the, the use of the argument that it's not fair that he has what he has and I have what I have. Um, and it has destroyed more societies than any other issue in the world. And interestingly enough, 
In ancient Athens, wealth was basically based on ownership of land. It was a city-state. Land was, the amount of land was fixed, so it was virtually a zero-sum game. Today, wealth is not a zero-sum game. People create their own wealth. Uh, Bill Gates created the wealth that he owns. In fact, he only owns 7% of Microsoft. Who owns the other 93%? Our pension funds. So it's, a, it's an incentive I don't understand. I'm richer because Bill Gates is richer. My pension is worth more because of Warren Buffett being rich. So how am I somehow worse off because he's better off? One thing we show in the book, which I think is interesting, is despite Sanders and Warren and all those people about these billionaires and how we could have all this government if they just paid their taxes, we show that if you took every penny of income of every billionaire in America and gave it to the government, you couldn't fund the government for a week. The problem is there are not enough rich people. Uh, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and any, uh, any argument that you're ever going to fund government except by taxing middle and upper middle income families is just mm -hmm. not accurate. Now, now, you say that the purpose of your book is to start a debate, That's right. not end one. But you also say what needs to be done about the myth of income inequality is going to require federal legislation. That's right. So since your book came out five months ago on September 15th, has any congressman or senator moved forward in putting together a bill that seeks to correct the misanalysis that our government has been creating now for decades? Well, there are, there are several of them that are studying it. What I'm trying to do is get knowledge is power. And if you can get the facts out there, Congress will be forced to act. So I'm confident that bills will be introduced in both the House and the Senate this year. I'm hopeful that... Uh, that a bill will pass the House. And what I would like to do is get a rider on the appropriation for census and just get the Speaker to say, if you don't straighten the facts out, we're not going to fund the census. Money um, talks. <laughs> and look, this is a hard debate. I mean, Larry Summers is hosting me two weeks from now at Harvard to talk about this book. Uh, now, it'll be a very interesting get-together, but I've done this. I've done this at Stanford. Um, the left's reaction to it is sort of, um, well, you prove that, that our programs have worked. You proved that we have eliminated poverty. Well, that's true, but what else we show is is that as these transfer payments grew from 9,700 to 45,400, the percentage of work-age persons in the bottom 20% of income earners that actually worked fell from 68% to 36%. Mm -hmm. So we eliminated poverty, 
But we did it through the cost of idleness. Um, and another argument in the book is, in addition to getting the facts straight, we're now providing such a high minimum living standard that we've elevated people that don't work into the American middle class. And if you don't have a mandatory work requirement, it's now you're going to have more and more people who find it to their advantage to just not work. Why did 1.6 million people that were laid off in the pandemic never come back to work? Well, they discovered that they were as well off not working as they were working. And we can't blame people for responding to um, the system as it is. Now, something you haven't yet talked about, which is a, a deep theme in your book and is very important, is inflation and the impact of inflation on real income, economic well-being. Uh, does our federal government currently measure inflation accurately? Well, first of all, the federal government has five different measures of inflation. And they use the five different measures of inflation to adjust for inflation for different things. The most accurate measure by acclamation of anybody who understands statistics and the numbers is the price index that they use to uh, deflate the tax brackets of our tax system. As you probably are aware, when prices go up, the next year, the tax brackets, this is in the Reagan tax cut uh, uh, of, of 1981, we index the tax brackets because for the previous nine years, the inflation rate had been 9.2%, and that had moved people into higher and higher tax brackets. And so the tax burden was growing every year. So the most accurate measure we have now, which takes into account that when prices, relative prices change, people change what they buy. We do use that for taxes, for gross domestic product measures, and for productivity. Then we have the standard consumer price index for wage earners. It is the least accurate because the, what's called a market basket doesn't change. But I don't want to get too deeply in the weeds, but just simply to say, what we need to do is come up with one price index and a big problem is we don't adjust for quality changes. Now, I'm just give you an example. When the smartphone came on the market, it didn't go into the consumer price index for 14 years. And so by the time the consumer price index picked it up, it had already fallen by two-thirds in price the battery lasted three times as long, the network was 10 times as good, and none of those things are reflected in the cost of living or in the well-being of people who own this phone. On this phone, I've got more information that is in the local library. 
uh, I can communicate with anybody in the world instantaneously. I don't have to write a letter, uh, put a stamp on it, go to the post office. None of this value is reflected in how well off we are. So that when people are comparing between generations, this, it, it, much of the benefits of the modern era are simply left out of government statistics. And so one of the things we need to do is come up with a better way of bringing new products, new technology into our measures of well-being. And I will say this, and it, 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 uh, one of the reasons that productivity has lagged since uh, the, roughly the year 2000 is, in my opinion, because we don't have, if, you, if a steel mill produces more tons of steel, you know it, you measure it. But if a new product is created that changes our way of life, uh, it's not reflected in anything. And so we can't measure it. And so, or at least we haven't measured it. And so this is it's in, in the major point of the book, but the point is when people are saying we hadn't had a wage increase in 50 years, well, first of all, it doesn't count fringe benefits, which are 25% of wages now. And then if you adjust for uh, accuracy and in inflation, you can show this completely wrong. So when anybody's talking about the good old days economically, you know they're talking through their hat. Um, well, I mean, one of the <clears throat> points that I hadn't processed until I read your book, they said, well... A new car in 1970, the average price was $6,000. And in 2022, it's $40,000. Therefore, we've had this horrible inflation. In fact, today's car, as you point out, lasts longer. It's a totally different product. And so we're, they're not comparing, as you say, apples to apples. Well, of whatever the smallest Ford is, is... Um, more reliable than a Rolls-Royce was 40 years ago. Um, They're they're just different products. Now, again, if you adjust for inflation, uh, cars are still cheaper today than they were 40 years ago. Uh, And they're a different product. They've got radial tires. I mean, again, people... Uh, you know, I was young 40 years ago, and the world was good. <laughs> it, but the point is, it was a very different world. I, uh, my mother used to, we'd ride by the nicest house in town, and she'd stick her finger out the window and say, if you work hard, you can have a house like that. You know, I ride by the house today, I wouldn't live in it. <laughs> they, uh uh, you know, that you, you forget. I threw the newspaper in the richest neighborhood in town. And you go back to that neighborhood, and it hardly matches a middle-income neighborhood today. Almost nobody had air conditioning. Um, virtually nobody had television. Uh, they're just completely different products. 
Um, well, another important point that I hadn't considered before on this subject of inflation, but when we think about how it impacts our budget and therefore impacts the amount of our federal deficit is how many things government funded are tied to a, quote, cost of living adjustment, which you point out, you know, is flawed. So talk about how this fact is actually causing our government to go deeper into debt. And, and that's why this, in my mind, is such a revolutionary book, because it, it, it opens your eyes to the way government really works. Well, I'll just give you one figure. If you indexed spending to the same inflation rate you index the tax code, 20 years from now, you'd spend a trillion dollars. You would have spent a trillion dollars less. So these little changes over time make a big difference. And what we've done is we, because of the, the again, the, the, the inflation stuff is more technical, but because of the way we've done it, entitlement spending has grown very, very rapidly. And if we correct, if, if you wanted a quick way to, uh, and, and a, a way which does not involve, quote, cuts uh, in any kind of realistic sense, just using a more accurate price index to a price level to index programs would save vast amounts of money over time. Mm -hmm. Now, another one of the things that Bernie Sanders and others like to talk about is how everybody in the bottom is stuck. That man, if you're in, if you're in the bottom 20%, you don't have any chance of getting out, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about what that statement compared to what the real facts are regarding income mobility among the different 20% levels in our society? Well, first of all, it's better to be born rich and brilliant and beautiful. <laughs> okay, if you, can do, if you can do that, do it. But if you're born poor and ordinary and plain, that doesn't disqualify you from success in America. People like that succeed in this country every day. We look at families across time and basically find that in the bottom 20% of income earners, 93% of, of children who grew up 20, 30 years ago in the bottom 20% of income earners are better off today than they were as children. And that's not counting all the quality changes or anything else. Uh, in the middle three quintiles, nobody debates the fact that there's massive mobility. Uh, this idea that somehow having money is, a, is something that can't be overcome, uh, anybody that believes that has not spent enough time around American mothers. Um, uh, look at the Asian community, people who came here with nothing, didn't speak the language, and now the gap between Asians and whites is almost as big as the gap between whites and blacks. 
hard work, parenting pays off. Um, so, but basically what we're able to show is that there is massive mobility and that primarily in the bottom quintile, the people that have not progressed are the people who stop working. If you look at the, this, this, this 30 years period, you had 68% of the adults working at the beginning of it in the bottom quintile. You have 36% now. The people that didn't rise didn't get in the economy. They didn't get on this economic escalator where incomes have doubled in the last 30 years. But they've doubled if you worked. Um, and then you've got the argument, well, so for the low-income people, the explanation, 63% of people born in the bottom quintile end up living in a higher quintile as adults. Uh, in the top quintile, if you're born in the top quintile, 62% end up living in households with a lower income level in a, quint in a lower quintile than their parents. Now you say, well, that still means that you got 38% that stayed in the top quintile, but there's a statistics thing here. You can't rise out of the top quintile. There's no uh, penthouse quintile. <laughs> so that uh, it looks like, for example, uh, Elon Musk was born and grew up in the top quintile. And he's apparently, supposedly, or was until a couple of years, the last year, the richest man in the world. But he's still in the top quintile. So the truth is, when you look at the facts, mobility is alive, the American dream is alive and well. And we can make it better. Uh, we can make it better with a work requirement that gets people into the labor market to discover their talents, to become part of the success of the country. And then the second biggest determinant of success in America, other than working, which is the biggest determinant, is education. And uh, uh, we look hard at the data on school choice and endorse it not, there may be something better out there, but there's no statistical evidence to show it. School choice works. And... Um, well, talk about how the education level impacts the quintiles. That people with a college degree, people with an advanced degree, how does that impact the 20% brackets? There are exceptions, but by and large... The more educated you are, the higher your income. The more you're in an area where wages are higher, the higher your income. Now, there are exceptions. You've got about a little less than 10% of the people in the top quintile never set foot in a college. Uh, so you've got some people who just succeed. But... But that's, that's less common today than it was 50 years ago because the same qualities that produce success now 
the person ends up going to college. Now, did the college do them any good? I don't know. Uh, they probably would have been successful anyway, but it's just something that happens now that may not have happened 50 years ago or 75 years ago. So if public education uh, is such an important determinant of success in life, economic well-being, what does your book talk about in terms of how are we going to make education better for the people who are in the bottom 20% or the bottom 40%? What's the answer there? Well, we look at the hard evidence on competition and school choice, and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Um, and if you look at what is happening in America today, first of all, if, if a child goes to school, especially in the inner city, they're getting generally an inferior education unless their parents are pushing them uh, to supplement that education. You can get a good education anywhere if you've got the right stuff. And the right parents. And the right parents. But most people don't have the right stuff and don't have the right parents. So um, uh, basically the conclusion is that if you look at what is happening with lower income people, um, they're getting a poor education at the primary and secondary level, even if they go to college, they don't feel prepared to go into the areas that actually pay money. And so they end up going into areas that pay lower wages. Um, and um, it all goes back to reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, if you're deficient in those areas, you tend not to go into engineering. You tend not to go into science. Uh, you, um, and as a result, you end up making lower incomes. So uh, I, I often wonder how many people in South Oak Cliff High School have got real ability that's just never discovered. Uh, my guess is more than we think. And we can't afford to not discover that ability. So, you know, the political problem, of course, is the school system <coughs> is the largest employer uh, and the largest purchaser of plumbing services, electricians, you name it, in the county. And they're opposed to choice because they don't want competition. Uh, but the price we're paying for the monopoly in education is very high. Uh, and at some point, the evidence is going to become so overwhelming that we're going to have to fix it. Um, and hopefully that's going to happen in Texas this year. But let's talk about your experience, not only as an economist, but also during your political career. You've a couple of times mentioned the fact that with the uh, extreme uh, increase in transfer payments, that has caused people in the low, low quintile, bottom 20%, to be less inclined to work. Now, when you were in the Senate uh, in 1996, the Welfare Reform Act, which 
created incentive to work was passed. What's the status of, of that situation now vis-a-vis federal legislation to uh, advance that goal? Well, the Clinton welfare reform bill was the most successful social change of my political career. But it had two problems. One, it only applied to aid to families with dependent children. So if you look at the employment rate of low-income people today, it spiked for women with children. Okay? In other words, it worked. Secondly, when Obama came into office, he granted all kinds of state waivers to waive the mandatory work requirement for the program. They're all suspended because of the pandemic. So what we argue in the book is we simply need to apply the Clinton welfare reform to every means-tested program. And what the program, what the Clinton welfare reform said, you've got a certain period, and during that period, Uh, you have got to be looking for a job, and beyond a certain period, you start losing benefits. And uh, the the wonderful thing about the AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children Welfare Reform, was how many people bettered their lives once they got into the labor market. I don't, I, I'm a firm believer in this idle hands of the devil's workshop. Uh, I just don't see how you can be happy sitting around watching television and taking dope all day. Uh, uh, that, that's unkind, but unfortunately, there's enough truth to it that nobody laughs. Um, and... Uh, so I think that's the reform's got to be done. Mm-hmm. Now, another line that you hear often promoted is this growing gap between uh, whites and blacks in, the, in the, the economic quintiles and that the blacks are stuck and because of education and other factors, there's not uh, the same rise on the escalator, the economic escalator for African-Americans as compared to, to Anglo. So, so give your perspective on, on those facts. Well, it certainly was true 50 years ago that the average white was more successful than the average black. It is certainly true today. But the gap has narrowed substantially. The college attendance has narrowed even more, though there is still the problem that the average black student in college is tending not to major in the things that pay the most. Um, So the gap is narrowed. um, But as tempting as it is, especially on the left, to blame discrimination, I would say two things about it. What about Asians? Um, the most successful group in America uh, on an ethnic, on a racial basis. Tiger Moms. Uh, how, how is it that they have succeeded? Uh, and then secondly, 
Uh, I think that the, the government now discriminates in favor of blacks in employment, promotion, uh, in every, in getting into college, in every way except where it counts, which is primary and secondary education. It's government that is discriminating against blacks in primary and secondary education. That is a major driver here. And uh, secondly, law enforcement. Not law enforcement of too tough police, but law enforcement of not maintaining law and order in the minority community. Uh, and both those discriminations are coming from government. Um, Expand upon on the, on the primary and secondary education. Connect the dots how government is harming African Americans. Well, look, all you got to do is look at the, the state, the, this achievement test that's given uh, we've had all these efforts to suspend it because the test is dumb. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, the test is accurate. And what it shows is that we are doing a very poor job, especially in the inner cities, in teaching people basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, I'm not going to get off into the deal about you know, how much time we're trying to teach them that society's unjust. Government is unjust. Uh, but society is hardly unjust. Uh, you know, anybody's being the least bit honest has got to admit that if you're a black and you're well-educated and you've got something on the ball, you've got an advantage. I mean, it's just a fact. Um... And, um, you know, this idea, this is all this latent racism, and I, I see no evidence of it, uh, none whatsoever. I, saw, I was yesterday at the, I'm sure people in this room were too, at the Dallas Regional Chamber annual meeting. And uh, they had a series of speakers of the most recent chairman of the Dallas Regional Chamber, the guy from Jacobs Engineering is an Indian American who graduated from the Naval Academy. The guy who's about to take over is a, is a Latino uh, with Texas Instruments who's a graduate of West Point. And then the third guy, John Elijah Day, who's from Nigeria, uh, you know, Indian American, Latino, uh, Nigerian American, uh, to, to see that presentation of big time leadership, both at corporate and civic, uh, I can't imagine anybody coming in Dallas, Texas and saying, oh, no, that's, that's a real prejudiced place where people cannot succeed if, if, if they're, quote, minority. Well, look, it's always, I, I, one of the best lines ever was Baby Bush's line about the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, um, I think uh, that uh, it's so easy to make excuses. Um, the, uh, 
to find, say, you know, society done me wrong. Uh, well, by and large, you did yourself wrong. Well, that's a hard message, but it's true. Um, and everybody's on eggshells in, in terms of what they say and discuss. Fortunately, uh, I'm old, and I don't, so I can say what I think. But uh, uh, well, I, I think one of the, the the reasons your book is so important is. Bill is not offering opinions. He is presenting data generated by the federal government to draw logical conclusions. That's right. That's right. So I think, I'm glad everybody here has a copy of this book, and I hope that after you read it, you'll think about buying additional copies to send to your friends. Because what we're talking about really is game-changing in terms of the legislation we need, what stands out to me about Phil and Harlan and so many of the other people in this room is we're red, white, and blue. We're optimistic about America. And every day we get this message about, oh, it's horrible. Income inequality is growing. Poverty's worse. All this kind of stuff. And the data shows that's just not true. Yeah, but, let, me, let me sort of end with a pitch. Don't be put off by tables and charts, okay? <laughs> um, you, if you can add and subtract, you can understand anything in this book. Um, and it's important to show people, when everybody's talking about high-income people paying their share of taxes, that we have the most progressive tax system in the world in America. High-income Americans pay a larger percentage of the tax burden than high-income people in every, any other country in the world, and we show it, okay? And so you've got these numbers. It's one thing to have opinions, but it's another thing to have the evidence to back it up. And if you read through this book, and it's not a long book, uh, you'll have the facts uh, that America works. It's not perfect. It's not heaven. I had a guy, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal Saturday week ago about income mobility, and his argument was, well, I don't know how you can say that the American dream is live and well because so-and-so, so-and-so. And so I just responded to him, but I didn't say we were, that this was heaven. This is America, Okay. It, it is not perfect, but it's so much better than any other country in the world now or ever, or ever. Now, a lot of things are being done that are <laughs> making it worse, but there's a lot of ruin in a great nation. So <clears throat> don't get in this thing about, you know, America's going to hell in a handbasket. America's got real problems. But we got so many things that are going right. Uh, it's just very difficult to fail in America. As I used to say in my politic, in America's dream, mother's dreams do not die easily in America. Uh, I tell the story, I failed the third, seventh, and ninth grades. My mother decided before I was born I was going to college. 
And I knew, I really knew I was gonna have to do it or she was gonna beat me to death. <laughs> um, but the point is, this is a country you never have to apologize for. Read the book, know the facts, and stand up for America. Um, you know, not in any flag-waving sense, but in the sense that don't, it's like I say to people, if you're going to convince me America's unfair, given where I came from, you're going to have to get up mighty early in the morning. <laughs> it, there's, there's, no, there's no basis for claiming America's unfair. It's, look, we've had bad periods. There's no doubt there was discrimination. Um, but that's ancient history now. Mm -hmm. It's now an excuse, and uh, excuses hurt people. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for coming. We, we have time for questions from the audience. Does anybody? Yes, David. Well, I met Eek, Bob Eakland, uh, who's a great scholar now. He's written over 40 books, 200 peer review articles. When we were uh, young assistant professors at A&M in the publish or perish world, we did not perish. Um, and uh, John Early is a distinguished statistician who was assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Labor Statistics under two presidents. So the, he knows these numbers. And Eklund <laughs> e and I discovered early and concluded he knew more about the statistics than we would ever know given how long we were going to live. And so we convinced early to join us. And this is not a book where three people, you know, they divided up the chapters. Every word in this book was written by everybody. And I think uh, the sort of tension between Early and me on every sentence is what produced a book that is well written, I say, immodestly. Not, and I didn't write it alone. So... Um, in any case, that's how, that's how it happened. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, you need to remember that this idea that a poverty household is a a single woman and a bunch of children is 50 years out of date. Poverty households now have less than two people. Um, and if you break income down on a per capita basis within households, income inequality shrinks further. In fact, stunning as it sounds, the difference between the income of 
the bottom quintile and the middle quintile on a per capita basis, the difference is almost zero. So what is happening all over America is you've got families in the middle income quintile, 91% of adults are working. So you got a husband and wife working, they're barely making ends meet, and then you got somebody living across the streets not breaking a sweat. Well, obviously, there's resentment about it. And I think that's really the underlying factor in this growth of populism. Um, um, but um, <coughs> that's, that's the per capita part. And we... It's in the second chapter we got, we, we show it, and it's, it's pretty stunning. I would say the surprising finding of this book is the bottom 60% of American households have basically the same income. That's how generous all these benefits are. Now, maybe we be, should be having a debate with Bernie Sanders about how we could provide these benefits more efficiently and cut out all these government bureaucrats. And, you know, that's a worthy debate. And when I say we're trying to start a debate, not in one, that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to close. But let, let me just say, there may be people in this audience, because Phil is opening our minds to new information, that may find some of these conclusions troubling. And all I can say is read the book, examine the facts, not what you thought the facts were. In fact, I'll let you close, Phil, with, with the quote from Mark Twain that opens the book, because I think this is really what it's about. Let's get to the facts and draw conclusions from the facts. But what, what's Yeah, the his quote is, uh, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know that ain't so. Um, and I would say this, that when you write a book like this and you're willing to go to Harvard and defend it, <laughs> uh, it shows you've got some confidence in what you're doing. And again, there are a lot of things that in this book that you could, you could say in a different way or you could use the information in a different way, but you can't dispute the information. Okay, so it's as if Bernie Sanders went to sleep and had a dream that America was a welfare state, and he woke up, and sure enough, we're a welfare state. We transfer more income than any country in the world except France. You know, this idea that you've got that uh, America is somehow different than Europe, when you get the facts straight, we're as we transfer as much money as Germany, Britain, um, we just aren't counting it. And I think we need to count it and then debate, are we doing it the right way? Uh, we're wasting our time. Poverty rates 14%. We need to provide more money. We provide it. Poverty rates 14%. We need to provide more money. We provide it. But <coughs> actually, the people that are poor today have got some kind of mental or 
adjustment problem where they can't take care of themselves and the people they're responsible for, or they've got a problem with some kind of substance dependence. Um, and we need to reach those people and help them. Just adding more money to food stamps or rent subsidies, people living on the street in Austin aren't applying for either. Uh, so, you know, if you really want to help those people, you need to go try to figure out what their problem is and help them. But just providing more money when we're already providing $45,400 for the average family and the bottom 20% income earners is not going to reach those people. So the way it's organized now, we spend it, we don't count it. And so we got a problem, we spend it, we don't count it. And there's a problem, we spend it, we don't count it. Point is, we're not reaching the people that are really needy. Uh, so that the flip side of this, this is very human stuff. You say, well, you know, if we educated people better, they would work and they'd pay taxes instead of using taxes, but they'd also have better lives. And uh, so never, I never see the moral high ground to a liberal. They don't care about people. I care about people. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Phil. Great job. After reading Phil Graham's game-changing book on the facts regarding economic well-being in America and how they've been misreported by the Census Bureau for the last several decades, I'm hopeful that his book, The Myth of Income Inequality, will result in much-needed federal legislation to correct the public record and allow Americans to feel better and more confident about our country's prosperity throughout our population. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.